Hello everyone, welcome back. I just wanted to give a little introduction to this episode because unfortunately we had some major technical difficulties this weekend when it came to recording. We were originally, we were originally supposed to record on Saturday and unfortunately we're not able to do so. And when we went to record on Sunday while Gavin was at home, we for some reason could not get his setup to work correctly. So there were some issues going on with his microphone and headphones. So for the beginning of the episode, you will notice that his audio is very blown out and scratchy. I did my best to go through and kind of level it out and uh, improve upon that. And it did get slightly better as the episode progressed, but then we also had the issue of stereotypical Venice Beach background noise, which unfortunately his mic started picking up for some reason. So I went through and managed to edit out almost all of that as well. So still a great episode. Just wanted to give you guys that uh, little notice. Anyway, thank you for your continued support and I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Martial Arts Mania Podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Gavin. And we're here. We're doing it. <laughs> We've had 24 hours worth of technical difficulties, but here we are. Um, indeed, we are. I'm actually trying to wonder how many hours on the island of the film we're going to discuss did our protagonist spend? Oh. And did he get more done? than we did trying to launch this podcast. Well, he's there for at least uh, what would be like 48 hours, maybe more like 72. We also, yeah, you know, uh, but we'll be getting to that soon. Soon. Yes. Uh, the movie we'll be talking about today, which once again, you all already know because it's going to be in the title that is uh, posted uh, on the release. But anyway, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well. How are you? How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Feeling good. Had a nice... Uh, chill weekend uh yesterday was my birthday so we were supposed to record on my birthday but that's all right we're here now so i had a very uh relaxing day a lot of good food a lot of good people and some good kung fu so i can't oh, yeah. complain that's all i asked for for uh my birthday weekend so yeah it was nice started out on friday night jessica surprised me took me out for a very nice sushi dinner that oh. was wonderful and then uh yesterday was just people spoiling me and uh i actually made out like a bandit this year with gifts like all just i don't know how people pick such good gifts uh i'm wearing one my mom got me this badass like short sleeve under armor uh shirt hoodie thing very uh, nice always a cool one uh jessica got me an awesome new pair of quicksilver shorts Ooh. uh yeah they're they're my favorite kind i have another pair because technically i think they're called amphibian so you can use them as trunks uh, they're, they're very lightweight, but high quality. It's just, they're nice. They're nice shorts. I like them. They fit well. And then, uh, uh, I got some, uh, cool, uh, workout stuff from my stepmom. Uh, my aunt and uncle who were there for dinner, they got me another cool, like Nike shirt. My, uh, sister got me this awesome, like Yeti mug type thing. So I, was, I, I usually, you know, I, don't really do much for my birthday. So it's like, cool. I got all sorts of fun stuff. You got to spend more birthdays in Murphy's. That's right. Well, technically, well, it was started off in Murphy's, then went up to Arnold, Arnold, which is <laughs> the one town up the highway where my mom and stepdad live. So, well, it sounds like you had a great day. It was a great day. As Ice Cube would say, it was a good day. 
But I'm going to say uh, it was a great day. Yeah. Better than Ice Cube's day. Better than Ice Cube's day. Uh, the Lakers didn't beat the Supersonics, but I mean. <laughs> no one's beaten the Supersonics in years. In years. Uh, um, oh, we're matching today. We are. Oh, we're wearing the same there like forest green. There you go. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, so I was going to uh, hit you with a quote okay. to start this podcast off. I kind of remember it. But I might butcher it slightly. Okay. So we're going to try and stump you today on your birthday, but we're also going to, we're calling it your birthday, even though it's the day after. Got it. But it's in your wheelhouse. Okay. My house with wheels. Your house with wheels. That's, and I'm my, gonna that's say, my future plan, by the way, is just to live in an RV. And, oh, there you go. Yeah. I'm going to say it very dry. Okay. So I am about to explode. Oh. Sam Blamo? Yes. There you go. I got it. Okay, so first episode first episode of season two, Martial Law. That's right. Martial Law, Sam Blamo. I am the bum. That's right. I am the bum. <laughs> doesn't he say but who says I'm about to explode? Was it the guy who is uh no, he says that, doesn't Samuel he? Yeah, Samuel says, says, says that, yeah. 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 So he was uh, a bomb is strapped to him and he has to rob a bank or something along those lines, and they're like, he has to keep moving because if he stops moving, it the the chest monitor starts beeping and he could explode, so he has to keep moving. And then right. the, these it's, guys. It's like the movie Speed, except but, for rather than a bus that has to keep moving, it's Samuel Hung that has to keep yeah. moving. So he's jogging in place a lot and, you know, just kind of boop a doop. It's such a great episode. His, his one on five fights, fight scenes. 1v5 fight scenes are fantastic. I think there were five assailants. I mean, his his group fight scenes uh, throughout the entire show is just fantastic. Now, I don't think there's been anything like that on TV before or since. I have to agree with you. It is uh, very stellar. Great episode. A great introduction to the season. And it's a great way for them to kind of just erase a lot of the critical plot elements of the previous season, which they just decided to kind of not address or whatever. And there's like little throwaway lines like, do you work for Lee Hay? It's like, no, 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 no. And then, uh, or, and it's like, wait, what happened to the pre? Oh, oh, okay. I'm going to be too distracted by the awesome action to think about the inconsistent plot holes from the yeah. finale of season one. They were, they were truly trying to make it like a Hong Kong cinema in that sense. Yeah, there you like, go. Uh, speaking of bombs being strapped to people, I did get to see Police Story 1 and 2 at the New Beverly this past week. Ooh, and, and how was that? Because the the version, the copies you would have been uh, watching are obviously the originals, because that's what's shown yes. at New Beverly. When I went and saw the double screening a couple years back, they were the Criterion Collection remastered uh, versions. So I don't, I just, I guess they weren't necessarily on film. Maybe they were. But uh, they were beautiful up on the big screen. But for you, you're watching the ori- original copies of them. So how was yes. that? So it's not as a it's not as clean as like a Criterion copy. Right. But there is so much more like color depth with uh, like kind of like that faded color depth that yeah. you get with film. It was really great. To, I was actually thinking, you know, a lot of people walk away from Police Story 1 talking about just the epic action. I mean, it is essentially Jackie Chan showing us and the world how to do a rogue cop movie destroying everything here's oh you want to break glass in the mall here i'm going to break every pane of glass in the mall even panes of glass that shouldn't even be there like the like the one mirror scene however i think people overlook the fact that it is also uh, a great comedy showcase yeah the phone sequence is mm-hmm. so well timed 
the film does pop a couple places in the film sequence, in the phone sequence, but uh, it's just so well timed the comedy and his his interactions with May, uh, uh, where she he's pulling her off of the moped by accident. It just just the comedic timing is is beyond. Uh, what you might expect from a usual action comedy. Well, with with each police story film, you're also wondering, wow, why is she still putting up with his shenanigans? And then by number two, wow, she's still st- stuck with him. Then by number three, wow, she's still t- stuck with him. Then suddenly number four, she's gone. It's like, okay, makes yeah. sense. She finally she, left his ass after the Kuala Lumpur fiasco of uh, Supercop. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know what's funny? Is Mars playing the same character in Police Story 1 as he plays in Supercop? Oh, no, no, definitely not. Because he, yeah. he's not undercover. He's uh wow. I, you know what? I never thought about that. So he plays a completely different character in super cop. It's more like a small throwaway role because he's trying to break out. Uh, well, in the English version, Tribot uh, out of prison. So <laughs> uh, Tribot. I was like, what kind of name is that? But uh, yeah, so excellent point. But I mean, as we all know, within Hong Kong cinema, there was only a certain amount of actors a certain amount of stuntmen within the circle of whether it's jackie's team or samo's team so you're going to have repeat actors playing completely different roles uh that being said though mars obviously plays the same role in police story one and police story two he is a police officer with jackie with uh having a more significant part in police story two uh and then suddenly in super cop he's just a completely different role not unheard of ken lowe did it all the time used to see him pop up mm-hmm. as yeah um speaking of the the reoccurrence of stuntmen a lot of the people from the police story films like at least through one through three minus samo we do see in today's the film we're going to discuss today which is always a pleasure very to, true. like spot people we see some as what i would call young adults at the oldest then we see some as like teen adults like maybe 17 or 18 and then young adults being maybe like 18 to 20 21 and then we see one particular individual as a child still who was a significant player within uh mm-hmm. uh hong kong cinema uh some teenage ones also and etc cetera, etc cetera. but uh before we get into the movie uh anything new anything exciting in the world of gavin or martial arts or anything that you have noticed well uh I just everything like was building up to the peak of watching Police Story One and Two this past week. So I was feeling like this martial arts emptiness after after uh, watching that because it was like, what can I watch on screen on my TV screen, or uh, you know, or on my computer screen after that? I just needed to take a few day break because it was just uh, so so kinetic. I mean, even even just. Uh, the scene in Police Story 2 where he's going across the freeway and gets hit by that truck. It's just... You know, I have... Uh, so, obviously, I went and saw the screenings like three or four years ago. Yeah. I have the Criterion Blu-rays of them, and I've been waiting for a special occasion. Just like the Criterion version of the movie we're talking about today, I've been waiting yes. for a special occasion to watch. Uh, but maybe tonight, I'll, that's what I'll watch. Uh, yeah, it's... You know, it's, it's, it's a great... It's it's kind of a, a turning point, I think, in Hong Kong cinema. I, I might be I might be wrong. Could be a turning point in world cinema, to be quite honest, because Tango and Cash pulled scenes right from there. I think there are a few scenes pulled through oh, yeah. from these movies. I mean, in S- Sly, 
uh, Sylvester Stallone. Sly has always been a huge fan of Jackie, admitted fan of Jackie. He wanted Jackie for the Simon Phoenix role in Demolition Man. Uh, and at that time, obviously, Jackie's a huge superstar as it was. I mean, this wouldn't have been downstepping for him, but I still think he was a little turned off from Hollywood. Uh, it would still be a couple more years till he would do Rumble in the Bronx, which was obviously a Hong Kong production that got that U.S. release. It was like slowly dipping his toes back in the Hollywood water, as you will. But uh, also it was the villain role, right? Like Jackie was like, no more villains for me. Uh, you know, he had, he'd done a few back in the day and it was kind of like just not his shtick. Also image, his image, right? You know, you have to think about that too. Uh, and then there's a lot more like political context even, or cultural behind it too. It's like, oh, he's going to do a Hollywood role and oh, but he's going to play the villain. It's like, okay, so you're once again, this villainizing the other or kind of like the the yellow peril, which is a throwback to early Hollywood cinema where quite often, uh, you know, Asian characters or really any minority were portrayed as like evil, the outsider, the forbidden one, because uh, a lot of people forget actually one of the first leading men of Hollywood cinema, one of the first uh, what you would call sex symbols of uh, male actors was a Japanese actor, uh, Sesu Hayakawa. I, I'm probably butchering his name, but he was quite often cast in this uh, role as like the forbidden lover, right? The In that thread of yellow peril coming in and stealing away the white man's woman and so forth. So there's a, there's a lot, there's a deeper context behind that also where, and whether or not that's what he was thinking, it's, Hey, I'm not going to step in and play this villain role. Plus, I mean, why would he need to also? He's the biggest star in the world technically at that point. Just, you know, minus USA, the whole rest of the world knew who Jackie was at that point. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think also uh, Jackie Chan has had a, a minute aversion to using guns in films. I that mean, too. Police, story, police story being some, kind of the exception, but even then. Well, uh, Super Cop, he does... Uh, use a machine gun and stuff in the whole sequence uh, with the drug deal and the golden triangle. Uh, in fact, I always remember because he has a badass like kip up or whatever where he flips up off his back and then starts shooting yeah. the machine gun and I was like, whoa. But it, he but still it, looks very reluctant to be doing it, yeah, right? And, and his aim is as good as the A-teams. They yeah. miss everything. <laughs> Huts this, blow up but people don't die. Yeah, this is true. This is true. Uh, but yeah, so uh, nothing really new on my end. You know, uh, just uh, kind of plugging along, doing my yeah. thing. Uh, excited to be recording again regularly. Uh, this was the first weekend I didn't have to travel anywhere in months. And I'm just super pumped to be at home. It's like I've had plenty of time to do stuff. As soon as we're done recording, I'm actually going to clean the house. Oh, that's, that, that, which that's always refreshing. To, which I need to do because I've left my like piles of messes everywhere. Just because I've literally had no time. You know, and... Uh, uh, definitely within the next few months, as I mentioned before, we'll be moving, some big changes. So, yeah, yeah, we're um, excited for what's to come. But now, let's – oh, you have something first? Oh, no, no. I just re remembered I, I did have one new, uh, martial art news to inform you about. Ooh. So Herman, our partner, Herman, mm -hmm. uh, Herman Balthazar, came down and trained uh, the Coburn Dance Academy students in kickboxing. This is a class that you would normally take for us and then get them ready to train with Petey. Mm -hmm. uh, that's going to happen, but uh, it was nice to have them on campus doing a little kickboxing Love it. On, on your birthday. Awesome. I'm glad you guys uh, celebrated my birthday in the best kind of way. Exactly. Uh, and shout out to Herman and then anybody that likes cool uh, 
martial arts design or clothes or gear, check out the Union Designs uh, on Instagram or the website, uniondesigns.com, I believe. He's, he's coming out with some jewelry. Really? Yes. It looks really good. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and uh, anybody that wants design work done for their school, for their uh, logo, he does a lot of fighter logos. He did mine. Uh, he did the whole rabbit design. Uh, technically, he actually came up with the name for me inadvertently, which we can talk about another day. Uh, and yeah, he does great work. So any martial arts folks listening, whether it's you want a personal design done for yourself, for your school, uh, anything else, hit up Herman at the Union Designs. Great quality clothes as well uh, and very reasonably priced. So, you know, win-win all around. But one last bit of news I have that just made me think of that was I finally ordered myself my non-region coded Blu-ray player. So I have already ordered a bunch of the Eureka and 88 films releases from the UK of the like remastered versions of classics. Uh, so I'm going to be having a lot come in over the next couple of months. I'm going to be spending way too much money, but I'm a collector. I love actual physical media. And so I'm going to be some of my all time favorite movies that I haven't seen in years. Spoiler alert. The one I will mention is miracles. Uh, I'm so, or Mr. Canton, Lady Rose, uh, TT in Chinese Miracles, uh, with Jackie Chan, which is probably, you know, it's funny when I think about it, it may be one of my all time favorite movies, if not my favorite movie of all time, next to the movie we're talking about today. And as far as Jackie Chan movies go, I've always said, and it fluctuates, but my favorite old school one, Fearless Hyena, and then my favorite, like, but technically, it's not even contemporary, but I guess, you know, contemporary Jackie Chan movie would be Miracles. It's just such a beautiful film, and I'm really excited to see it. And I'm really excited for these releases because they give you uh, the original English dubs, too, that I grew up watching. And so I don't have that same connection with it having to be the Cantonese or, you know, for my sake, practicing my Mandarin and listening in Mandarin. Uh, if anything, I actually prefer to listen in Cantonese than Mandarin just because it's, you know, I am some of the movies I did grow up watching in Cantonese. But for me, I have this special connection with the original English dubs like Wheels on Meals, Miracles uh, and a lot of those films where it's like it's just nostalgia factor. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny. We, we I think we went years without talking about what our favorite Jackie Chan film was because everyone always whenever you have that conversation, Miracles is one of the last fewest films that seems to pop up and i think that's because of all the multiple re-releases in america that yes. like i think one was black diamond or, or something it was uh, they black. did two in a row so i'm lucky that the first one i got was miracles it was just called miracles and it was in the uh it was i think miramax did it it was because it was released in hollywood video blockbuster all those places and then right after that they did another one that was called like black dragon or yeah. something like yeah. that and it was like huh but i don't think it went onto the rental market i think it was just for home video release and once again it's just maybe another company had got the rights at that point i've never seen that version i don't know if it's the same english dub etc but yeah it's it's but it's it, the film kind of had a diluted release in america because it was first a delayed release and then a like a two-track release so it's rare that uh we get to talk about miracles and it's just, it's such a fantastic film. And quite honestly, if it had the proper release, like the one we're going to discuss today, it, I think it would be discussed as one of the all time classics, the, the, the miracles and this film that you're going to do the do proper justice of introducing is such a, it's, it's a, it's not just a classic. It is an iconic piece that informed generations. 
Very well put. So pretty much we had decided, we're like, all right, for my birthday, what are we going to talk about? Steven Seagal's been coming up a lot. We've never done a Steven Seagal one. And spoiler alert, we probably will soon. So originally we thought, okay, maybe we'll do Steven Seagal. I was like, uh, because here's the deal. I've, you know, I would not consider myself, especially growing up, I enjoyed Steven Seagal's movies. And so I guess technically that would make me a fan, but I was not like a fan of Steven Seagal. Like I was say like Jean-Claude Van Damme for his uh, American contemporaries, right? Uh, as an American actor, not, obviously he's from Belgium, but uh, uh, so we thought about doing it. So I was like, you know what? It's my birthday. Let's tackle a, a movie that, and you know, I've been, I was busy. I've been busy at work. You've been busy. So I'm like, what's a movie I can talk about right off the top of my head. Don't need to do any research. And so I thought, why not? The movie I always say is my favorite film of all time. Uh, not just martial arts. In fact, usually when someone asks me my favorite martial arts movie, I don't even count this because it is my favorite movie. The 1973 Robert Klaus directed Bruce Lee classic, Enter the Dragon. So, uh, very special film for me. And I think a lot of viewers, other Bruce Lee fans, you know, have other ones that are their favorites, like uh, our buddy Sifu Alex at the... Uh, Kung Fu Genius podcast, you know, I know he loves Way of the Dragon. Uh, other people have, you know, oh, Fist of Fury is my favorite one, uh, aka Chinese Connection for the Amer- original American release, or even The Big Boss, uh, aka Fist of Fury for the original American release. Gets very confusing, convoluted. And, but Enter the Dragon for me is, I, I just still think it's one of those movies that really stands the test of time. Uh, for me, as I've mentioned before, uh, I can still tell you the exact uh, date or within a day or two of when I first got to watch the whole thing. So once again, I mentioned before, my mom was very strict growing up about R-rated movies, couldn't watch R-rated movies. Uh, once I got a little bit older, you know, maybe 10, 11, 12 range, I was allowed to watch R-rated movies that were on basic cable. So they were edited for TV. And uh, I think I mentioned this before. So December 25th. 1999 Christmas when I was in seventh grade, I got the Bruce Lee box set my mom bought me on VHS from Costco. And it had all the films aside from Enter the Dragon being that Enter the Dragon was a Warner Brothers release. So I remember I literally watched the entire box set because it was, once again, using the proper titles. The Big Boss, Fist of Fury, Way of the Dragon, Game of Death, and Bruce Lee the Legend, the documentary. Uh, and I watched all of them in one day. <laughs> and then I, the next day I rewatched them again. I was just, cause I've always, you know, I knew everything about Bruce at that point. I had the books, I had magazines, I'd seen some documentaries and this and that. And so it was just an incredible, uh, day for me. And then, but I still hadn't seen enter the dragon. Now what had happened was this was around the same time, uh, as you probably know, 1998 is when, who am I came out? Jackie Chan gave it a year. It's going to, you know, and I believe it actually got its American release on HBO. I remember seeing the trailers for it and so forth. So I I remember it comes on HBO at some point, you know, in 1999, maybe uh, I think it was that year where I was able to, okay, I'm going to tape it off a TV. And right afterwards, Enter the Dragon was playing. Now it was playing late at night. So I did the classic, you know, you just let it record. You start it before you could time it for when a movie was starting on the on VCRs for people that don't remember, even the old school ones, but it got a little bit easier later on where you would time the exact time to start. I never trusted that. Like, let's say if I was going to bed at nine and the movie was starting at midnight, I would just put it on long play mode and let it record for six hours. Uh, for people that don't know, you had like two recording options. It was SP and LP, short play and long play. Supposedly a short play was higher quality, but you couldn't record as much on the tape. I never bought that, so... 
Long story short, I remember I uh, probably did something along those lines. So I recorded Who Am I? But then afterwards was Enter the Dragon. Now, I was a, a very good kid and I never broke the rules, even if I could have easily gotten away with it. So that being said, you know, I'd watch Who Am I? plenty of times. And then I let it just kind of keep playing once. And then I let like, you know, the beginning of Enter the Dragon start. And I was like, oh, no, no. And then I'd stop. Then the next time I let it play just a little bit more. And then other stuff, I was like, okay, no, no, I didn't really watch it. And then I let it play a little bit more through like the opening sequence, right? Where he fights Sam on stuff. And I was like, and then the credits come up. Maybe I got to that, but okay, then I stopped it. Eventually I kept doing that in secret, like in my room, like, oh, oh, who's, no, he's going to find out all the way up until it gets to the sequence where he's going to go to the underground layer for the first time. And then the tape cut off. So, and I was like, wait, what did I hit stop? No, I had ran out of space on the tape and I was like, ah, so come Valentine's day of seventh grade. So the year 2000, uh, my mom always, uh, like did a big thing for Valentine's day with us. Like she'd always have us like a gift basket and stuff. I don't know why it was even like more so than birthdays some years. And normally she'd cook us an awesome dinner, but that particular year she decided to take us out to dinner at the one Italian restaurant in town in the small town I grew up in, in Ripon, Cristopolo's, which happened to be three like spots or four spots over from Rip and Video, our little rental place. And so, you know, we're having dinner, whatever. I just remember, okay, my mom's in a good mood. You know, it's like, she likes spending Valentine's Day with us. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to drop it on her. Maybe she'll let me watch Enter the Dragon. So I remember asking as we were leaving, I was like, do you, do you, do you think I can rent uh, Enter the Dragon even though it's rated R? And she said, yeah, okay, sure. And I just sprinted, went in there. I knew exactly where it was because I'd you know, gone in there all the time and just looked at it, grab it, rent it, got to watch it that night. And it was actually the original version because this VHS tape was from like the early 90s or 80s before they had re-added in the Roy Chow sequence, uh, which wasn't released till the 25th anniversary in 1998. And so got to watch that. You know, I'm okay. I'm blown away. Coincidentally enough, about three or four months later, it finally plays on basic cable on TBS, the superstation. And so I obviously record it. And for no joke, about one year, and once again, maybe with a week off here or there, you know, if we're traveling, I watched it once a week for an entire year. This taped off of TV edited version with commercials that I had to fast forward through. Uh, because that was another thing. If you were recording something and watching it at the same time, you could pause and edit out the commercials. But that was always a risk. You know, you may miss when it came back. So I watched this version for like a whole year, every week. And then about a year later, like at the end of eighth grade, uh, I remember I finally had enough cash saved to go buy the 25th anniversary edition VHS. And then it's funny because at that point, you know, I have this better version of it. And then I stopped watching it every week. Maybe every couple months I'd watch it, right? But I've literally watched Enter the Dragon, you know, close to, God, I don't know, like at least 60 times. <laughs> well, it's, it's like, it's like those films that, uh, that when you're first exposed to them, you just, you binge watch it and then it then you want to preserve the uniqueness, the specialness of it. So you only watch it on special occasions after that or, or only, only, um, when you really need to check back in with it because you don't want to lose that, uh, that like new car smell, even though you've seen it so many times. I mean, it's funny because when, you know, as for, for our non-martial art movie listeners, Enter the Dragon is, is a pivoting, is a pivot point in cinema for mm-hmm. so many reasons, just how it shot all the, all the different qualities about it and also the subject matter. And in many ways it is 
that pivot point that Casablanca was that uh, Gone with the Wind was Godfather. I know that they're Billy Jack. Yeah, Billy Jack. No, I know that there are a lot of people who might cringe at at thinking, well, how can that be? But if you, you know, because even even like if you go back to Gone with the Wind, there there are some extremely dated aspects of it, but it is a pivotal movie. It is it is one of the cinematic icons. If you were to to do like, you know, there was there was one year where the I think AFI, the American Film Institute, was coming out with the hundred greatest comedies, hundred greatest dramas, hundred greatest X Y Z. If they came out with the hundred most iconic films this is right mm-hmm. this is in that mix and how can Absolutely. it not be when bruce lee is literally the most iconic actor probably of all time simply because of how far he's reached on a global scale and how he continues to do so right like hey there's a lot of james dean fans but you don't you didn't see like james dean exploitation right or you know and you don't see all these james dean fan clubs and like clothing lines and this and that statues around the world right it's there's something very iconic about Bruce Lee and you kind of nailed it also where people might cringe and that's such an old school like uh, academia, film academia like mindset of oh martial arts movies are lowbrow oh they're not important and I've mentioned this before when I took Chinese cinema in undergrad our teacher uh, who is uh, a Chinese film scholar I believe she was actually from Beijing she just, when I asked her, I'm like, well, how come there's no segment on Bruce Lee in this entire course? And she straight up said these were exact words because Bruce Lee's not important. And oh, I was just like blown away. And I thought, wow, what an ignorant statement. But also it's based off of that, you know, who did, you know, hootie tootie mindset of like, oh, it's martial arts. Oh, it's not important. Oh, it's, you know, there's no cinematic value to that. Well, you know, and it's from what I understand, what like if you go back to Casablanca, I, I was watching TMC at one point, Turner Classic Movies, and they were they were discussing how originally they were just they had the intention of Casablanca being a B movie when the when the two guys I think they were brothers were writing it. The idea was they're just pumping this out like the other B movies. So uh, there's something that clicks through the heart and the story and the performance and the synergy of everything coming together. And that's what, that's what happens in enter the dragon. Are there a lot of copycat films after that? Yes. There's the whole Bruce exploitation pathway, but even the straight to video eighties and nineties films, they try to follow the format of enter the dragon just because they're, it's the, the, the ghost of enter the dragon or the fumes that they're, they're just trying to siphon off to make their own films. It's there's, for anyone to say that it's not important, number one, it, it devalues the impact of the writing and the the delivery of the lines that came from that film. But it also devalues the the cinematic uh, boom of the 80s and 90s where there was just so much, I mean, honestly, money that was made in that time. So many superstars emerged from that. They, they you know, you essentially followed the Bruce Lee uh uh, structure the, the the thumbprint of Bruce Lee is in every action star that followed, whether it's Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jackie Chan, Bruce Willis. It's the that format has followed ever since. From and from a production standpoint, you're nailing it because Bruce Lee literally redefined how to film fight sequences, martial arts choreography. He what had, you know, we're looking all the way back to the 1920s with the original uh, Shanghai cinema and like wuxia pictures and stuff. He did more in his period of, we'll say like 
three to four years when it comes to martial arts choreography than people had done for nearly 50 years before that. And it was this evolution. It was like a godsend, if you will, because he managed to catapult it to this whole next level, you know, and suddenly it went from very, as I always say, like rough and tumble, chop sake for, or, you know, basher type choreography to this beautifully clean, sharp uh, execution of the movements. And that has to do with his background as a legitimate martial artist, uh, as opposed to a lot of previous actors who were legitimate martial arts performers, you know, Beijing opera and stuff. But, you know, they had kind of just and everyone knows this in the original martial arts pictures of mainland China, uh, Hong Kong. They just took sometimes move for move the original choreography of Peking Opera, which sure can still look good. But once again, that was made for the stage. Stage combat's a lot different than film combat. And what Bruce did is he came in and he just changed the game for lack of a better expression. And because of him and in the short period we had with him and especially this film, and I'll talk more specifically about that in a bit, uh, those who followed him were able to take that format and be like, okay, we need to up our game. And it wasn't instantaneous. You know, it took still a good five, six years until contemporary Hong Kong or even traditional Kung Fu Pian, like traditional old school Kung Fu choreography was able to kind of catch up with that same sort of rhythm and explosiveness and authenticity. And then contemporary Hong Kong cinema, you know, not until Sammo pretty much defined the way it was meant to be done uh, with really, in my opinion, the first film, Carry On Pickpocket, to really kind of feature this style of choreography. But without Bruce, would we have eventually reached that point? Maybe. But look how long it had already taken Chinese martial arts cinema to get to where it was before that, like 40 years and was still kind of, you know, and Bruce, like, who knows how much longer it would have taken. And Enter the Dragon, so from a production standpoint, that right there. But let's look at from a cultural standpoint. Let's just examine the iconic artwork of the poster, which I have hanging up in my home gym. Let's look who's featured on there. Front and center, a Chinese-American actor leading this picture, right? Redefining what is strong, masculine, previous, you know, stars of that nature. Always Caucasian, right? It's just what the time was. Uh, But Bruce came in, broke down walls, right? Racial barriers. And here he is front and center, Ripped to the bone, the iconic, you know, it's obviously a, a drawing, but like with the nunchuck. So he's front and center. Who else do we have? We have Jim Kelly on there, African-American uh, actor. We've got, uh, I believe, you know, Bolo's on there at some point. Angela Mao, like a small little drawings, but you just have all this diversity on there. And here he is, a Chinese-American leading man, right? And he it's a Warner Brothers co-production, even though Golden Harvest run most of the money. Uh, and he became this global superstar, whereas previous ones were obviously, you're, you know, what America had to offer at that time were going to be Caucasian. Yes, we had some African-American stars. You know, Sidney Poitier was obviously already a star at that point. And on TV, you had uh, at, by the early 70s, you were starting to get more representation uh, uh, ethnically. But especially for the Asian male at that time, what we had was unfortunately atrocious use of yellow face. We had very kind of uh, degrading roles sometimes. Yes, the Kung Fu series uh, had come out by that point. Uh, 
if I'm not mistaken, right? It was already out because Bruce obviously lost the role or it may have premiered, uh, let's see it right afterwards. Hold on, let me double check that. Do, 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 do. Uh, 19, yeah, so 1972. Yeah, so I was right. Uh, April 26th, or excuse me, October 14th, 1972. So, uh, and it, it once again, this was a, show that was you know bringing to light Chinese culture representing in a very positive way had given the opportunity for many Asian American actors to have uh, guest starring roles but at the end of the day Yellowface was still being used and David Carradine was the lead right so Bruce comes in and sets this new precedent of okay I am going to be a superstar I am going to be the leading man and I'm different and from this point forward I'm going to make this a possibility. And so to ignorantly state that Bruce Lee wasn't important, I don't know. I just, it still stuck with me like nearly 15 years later, that professor telling that to me. And yes, you will sometimes get the counter argument of, oh, well, actually Bruce Lee was a poor representation because what he represented was this still this othering and the, you know, it's still connected to yellow peril because it's like oh he's the asian karate guy right and that's all he is and it's this toxic masculinity he brings with his hyper masculinity and i i personally disagree with that but i also can't speak to that necessarily as someone that did not grow up as asian american uh uh, and so there's going to be a different connection there however i still think for the most part what bruce brought to the screen and to the world were all very positive elements you 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 state it perfectly because it, I, I think that at the end of the day he helped the world he he introduced the world to uh, a philosophy that was out there and a way of life that was out there that otherwise people just didn't uh, acknowledge or know about. I mean, this is, I mean, obviously we, we could talk about the pre-internet days. This was pre-pre-internet. This is, this is, uh, yeah, this is when, back when local newspapers are still publishing two newspapers a day, the this morning is, edition, the afternoon yeah. edition, so you could get your news. This is back when you still only had NBC, ABC, CBS, uh, and that's, I think that was it, like the big I three, right? So, yeah. I mean, there had been, you were going to have your local affiliates, you know, uh, PBS by that point. Previously, you had uh, other stations that attempted, like the Dumont Network, uh, that unfortunately didn't last. But uh, yeah, pre uh, even HBO, you know, HBO came in in the 70s and then cable TV came in later on, like basic cable. But so, yeah, this is just a whole different time. It was. And it was in, you know, it's it, the film success itself. It, it's obviously in the hundreds of millions by now, I presume. Yes. Oh, yes. But it's like, but it was a slow burn because it had to, you know, you would get it. You didn't have like AMC theaters with 16 Well, uh, it was very successful in its initial run uh, for, you know, what it made. But over time, it's just continued to catch fire. Oh, yeah. And still does to this day. And and I, I I would suspect not, I don't want to say our listeners, but like within our our sphere of martial arts podcast and fans uh, and all this exchange that goes around within this sphere, there are still many people that haven't probably had the opportunity to watch this yet and they will get exposed to it at some point and it, they'll see, they'll understand 
it, it's it's just like uh it's basically like the Matrix red pill, blue pill moment ah, <laughs> watching well, this film. But it's funny you say that because her years of being with me, Jessica, who's watched you know tons of Kung Fu and martial arts films with me. So when we started watching it the other night, she's like, you know what? I don't think I've ever watched Enter the Dragon. And I'm like, what? She's like, well, I've seen clips and stuff with you, but I've never sat down and actually watched it. And now that I have the Criterion Collection box set one, uh, with Enter the Dragon, it's just so beautiful. And it is the original version. As I'm watching it, I'm like, wait a minute. There's And for a guy that's seen it, as I said, nearly 60 times, I'm like, wait, that sound effect was slightly different. Wait, that musical cue was slightly different. And I was like, huh, that's weird. Or even the shot looks. And that's when I realized that the, towards the end, I'm like, oh, I'm watching the original version of it because it actually didn't have the Roy Chow sequence at the beginning. I just kind of just escaped my mind. And it wasn't until the Hall of Mirror sequence at the end where you don't have Roy Chow speaking. The enemy is only illusions. You know, it's uh, I realized, oh, it's the original version of it. I believe on the special features of one of the other discs, you can watch the 25th anniversary edition with that extra Roy Chow sequence. But uh, that being said, with this, just watching it was just oh, so incredible. Like I felt like I was watching it not for the first time, but I was appreciating so much. My This is a movie I can multitask. I can put on and do other things, right? And that's something to take away from the film. It's just I love it so much. I can just have it playing in the background and be entertained. But I was captivated the whole time. I was glued to the TV set and I was noticing just little shots that I feel like I hadn't noticed before. Uh, and just when you have a remastered version like this, you start to appreciate the fine details, certain color elements, certain set design elements, certain facial expressions. Like now when you have a character in the background, in the foreground, you can see both of them quite clearly and notice them. Even the whole uh, sequence where... Uh, uh, Mr. Braithwaite is explaining the the island and the mission. You know, a lot of the times the camera's focused on Braithwaite, but in the background now you can clearly see Bruce and have a full a whole new appreciation for even just his subtle acting abilities. And so I think it's really cool being able to watch this version of the film. Um, speaking of the film, I so I was I, I rewatched and. I just really enjoyed spotting, and we, we, I alluded to this earlier, the stuntmen that he basically, and, and the performers that he brought onto this set at very early stages in their lives, and basically gave them, maybe in hindsight, maybe he knew what he was doing, this stamp of approval, and also this mentorship to launch them. I mean, and, and having Samuel of all the stunt folk and all the stunt performers have the largest uh, feature, I think, was also just a keen eye. I mean, right. yes, he, he he gets beat up, but he also gets some nice flips in there as well. Oh, yeah. And let, so let's talk about, we're not going to mention all of them because there's so many, but let's talk about some of the key players. Samo in the opening sequence, right? We get to see Samo has an actual fight scene. It's a nice contrast between Sanui ripped as hell Bruce Lee, uh, which, and once again, uh, Harkening back to certain people's opinions, a lot of people think like, oh, Bruce was too skinny in this. I don't know. I still think Bruce's physique in this is phenomenal. Obviously, it may have uh, been a result partly of his excessive cocaine use and just being so dried out. But I just still think he looks so incredible. His physique, especially in the underground fight sequence, you know, where he's sweaty, good lighting. You're just like, God, wow, he's super powerful. Uh, there's not a certain there's not a single sequence in the whole film where he looks soft which I don't care how good of shape you are in, depending on the lighting, depending on the angle, whatever it is, you know, we all know there's certain like rooms you can walk in with the mirrors and lighting where you're like, damn, I look good. And other times, literally two minutes later, 
you walk into another room and you're like, oh man, what the hell? I need to, I need to sharpen things up. But in this film, there's not a single moment where Bruce just doesn't look jacked. But that being said, so, you know, Sam owned that opening sequence, right? We've got Yuen Hua throughout and Yuen Hua was obviously his flip double too. So, and you, but you clearly get to see Yuen Hua in the open, in the banquet sequence and he gets to catch, you know, one of the apples. You've got Jackie getting his neck broken by Bruce classic right there. Everybody knows that, but also the fact that Bruce hit him with a stick and some point during the underground fight scene, nearly knocking him out. And, you know, Jackie likes to tell the story about Bruce was holding him and comforting him. And of course, uh, We've got uh, Tong Wei in the opening s- sequence with Bruce as the student, the kick me, you know, what was that? An exhibition? We need emotional content. So, and Stephen Tong Wei would go on to be uh, a Kung Fu star in his own right for a short period of time. He actually stars in what's one of my all-time favorites, The Incredible Kung Fu Master with Sammo Hung, aka Enter the Fat Dragon, or not Enter the Fat Dragon, they call me Fat Dragon. Uh, and then he'd become a very significant fight choreographer, one of my personal uh, gigs of his was being the fight choreographer for the hitman with Jet Li. Okay, so we have him in there. We've got uh, who else? Hoi Mang is the one I was mentioning before as a kid. He's on the boat sequence and he's the one that Bruce hands the rope to. Uh, and so he was obviously a couple years younger than, say, like Jackie at that point because. Uh, you know, Jackie was here born 1954. So he would have been, you know, 18 or 19 when they're filming that. Hoi Mong was probably, you know, closer to 13 or 14. So a few years difference there. Uh, any, anyone else in specific for more just like the random roles like that? Well, obviously Mars gets yes. uh, crushed to death. There we go. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. And, and I believe uh, it's Fat Chung or Chung Fat. That's one of the other ones. I'm not sure that. Yes. Anybody that's seen the movie knows what I'm doing with that. Uh, and then he like literally kind of hugs him to death. Is uh, Lam Chi Ying yes, in the yes. back? Yes, Lam Chi Ying is. Yes. Yeah, he pops up throughout as well. Uh, that was. Uh, see, there's just too many to try to remember. I know. Because I know. you can watch and be like, oh, there's so and so. Oh, there's so and so. Oh, and and, uh, and John Saxon, he was in it too, right? I believe he has a decent sized role, but yeah. uh, you know, I, I and I love John Saxon. And I think he was the perfect foil for Bruce Lee too. Really I mean, great. But he was he was calm, collected, cool. Yeah. He did he didn't try to step on any toes, and he was confident enough to let the the. It's like uh, it's like in soccer. I hate to. I'm going to do a soccer analogy, uh-huh. but essentially. You know, when we're defending, we try to let the play come to you rather than chasing the ball. He lets the film come to him. He lets his part come to him and he he allows other people because he's not the star. He goes in knowing he's not the star, but he's there to carry this. I mean, he gets double bill at the start and he has like the, you know, the he has uh, some fans within the film story. And obviously he was brought in by Warner Brothers thinking Bruce couldn't carry picture by uh, himself. Let's get an established star in there. But he I think he, John- he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't get in the way. It's like no, he knew exactly. why they he, brought him in. But he's like, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm just gonna be calm here, and and when when it's yeah. my turn, I'm gonna shine, and when it's not, I'm gonna make sure I'm gonna be the perfect castmate and let my uh, actor shine. And I had an idea for a list for us of like top five martial arts movie stars that weren't martial artists to begin with, you know. And he would be an honorary entry because his martial arts performance throughout this uh, movie. It wasn't just acceptable. It's good at some points. Even the sequence with uh, 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 Bolo, there's that one bop, 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 rhythm like choreography right there, which was even just for a kind of throwaway little shot, it was ahead of its time. And that was the kind of choreography you would see in, say, like a police story, like a five punch combo without a cut. But that being said, also his ability to bounce around and throw that jab when he's jabbing uh, Bolo, 
That's like legit. He looks like a boxer. He's got that swag. He's got that confidence. It's a pop, pop. It's not a, uh, uh, you know, for comparison at that time, David Carradine, who, sorry, was just horrifically bad in pretty much everything he did as a martial artist. No offense, but offense. Uh, you got John Saxon there looking legit. He throws great kicks. He does good catch and sweeps, uh, good backfist. And he just, there's an authenticity to his performance. And I know sometimes they, they would sell like, and obviously the marketing for this movie, they made up a lot of stuff. Uh, the 25th anniversary VHS one had a bunch of extra features afterwards that are on this same DVD. So I rewatched one of the promotional little videos they did for the early 70s. And it's it doesn't say anything about him in that. They just say, you know, uh, they say Bruce Lee and like who he is. Then they say John Saxon, who becomes his brother in battle. Then, you know, uh, they go to Jim Kelly, international karate middleweight karate champion which was true he had did win the long beach internationals then bob wall professional karate champion who i mean yes technically he was then they go to uh i think they do bulloid next but they do young c shatokan champion of southeast asia and i remember always thinking as a kid like oh wow he was a shatokan champion i don't even know what that is how cool then you realize later first of all they just made that up second the uh narrator's just mispronouncing shotokan uh which i didn't put one-on-one together then my favorite though is for angela mao or uh angela mao ying or mao ying they say angela mono ying Hapkido champion of Okinawa. <laughs> so, yes, Angela Mao did earn her black belt in Hapkido when uh, her Samo Jackie went to go train in South Korea. But first of all, she was never a Hapkido champion. What I mean, I, I don't believe they really created championships for Hapkido until much later and what that entails. I'm not sure. Also, Okinawa. OK, uh, Angela Mao is Taiwanese. Did she go challenge somebody in Okinawa and win that fight? Well, that's what I was... Champion. 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 So, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of made-up stuff. And so I know that John Saxon did have some previous martial arts experience. I believe he had dabbled with Tai Chi. And I remember reading somewhere he actually did do some Shotokan karate. Either which way, he had done enough. And it shows... Uh, that he had some real abilities and, you know, could have uh, could have made a run at, uh, at it. And quite honestly, I think his martial arts performance is just as good as Jim Kelly's, a guy that was a seasoned veteran martial artist that would go on to have a uh, martial arts film career of his own. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think John Saxon just understood filmmaking. And I mean, uh, you know, we, we've we're talking a lot about the performers, but they're the other elements that really come together in this film is one of my favorite uh, composers of soundtracks. Lalo Schifrin's score is oh, yeah. phenomenal, iconic, iconic. It's and you know it's it's you know people might know him from uh, Bullet, they might know him from Mission Impossible, they might know him from uh, End of the Dragon. It's just his work. It's not just his theme songs which catch you and tell you what mood you're going to be in for the film. It's just how he like the fly. The, I think there's one song called "The Fly" where I, you know Bruce Lee is climbing along the the side of the building, or I, I forget what at what point the fly actually plays because I, I didn't listen to the soundtrack and watch the. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I, I own the soundtrack and the fly just always. Do you actually stood have out. it on vinyl? No, I have oh. it on DVD. Oh, okay, or CD? CD. Yeah. I have it on CD. There we go. Okay, I was like, what DVD? Uh, 
I got it on DVD, son. Yeah, I got it on DVD. Get son, you should order it for me on cassette, dude. Uh, eight track, if you could. New, new. Yeah, don't want that used. Well, and you know, rumor has it that and maybe it's not a rumor, maybe it is. But Bruce Lee had wanted Lalo Schifrin to do the soundtrack because he used to work out to the Mission Impossible theme in his home, right? Wow. Okay. Uh, and so he had never got to see with the final cut. Bruce Lee saw the final cut without the music before uh, he passed away. So that's too bad. Yeah, it's too bad that he didn't get to see it with the soundtrack because the soundtrack is incredible. It's iconic. It's, one of my fights uh, when I was fighting at the Burbank Marriott, uh, which ended up being one of my worst uh, experience. Well, pretty much. Long story short, uh, a lot of stuff went wrong with that whole event. Uh, same day or day before weigh-ins got changed to same day weigh-ins. I ended up having to cut a bunch of weight and then weigh in that same day. Uh, my walkout theme song was supposed to be Enter the Dragon. But the DJ had been messing up all the, and when it was my turn to walk out, I, there was no music playing. We start walking out, I'm like, what the hell? I see the DJ running back out of the corner of my eye with pizza hanging out of his mouth. And then he goes to hit play, and instead I had Biggie. Uh, which, no no offense to the Toys B.I.G. And like, it was a good song. I can't remember which one it was exactly, obviously one of the more upbeat ones, but I was like, uh, all right. Like I was supposed to have Enter the Dragon and it was already messing with my psyche and stuff. Long story short, I end up, it's first round, I destroyed the guy the whole round till the very end. He went for broke with an absolutely beautiful, incredible left leg spinning wheel kick. Caught me just above my guard, behind my ear, flash knockout. Only time I've ever been knocked out. So my hat's off to my opponent uh, because he did what he had to do that day. But I was supposed to walk out to enter the dragon because it's such an iconic theme and it gets me pumped up. Uh, and no one's perfect, baby. You learn you, and you learn from your mistakes. Uh, but the soundtrack's incredible. So other production elements: the costume design, phenomenal. Mm -hmm. The set design, phenomenal. Shot on location in Hong Kong and some shots in LA pickup shots and so forth. Uh, so costume, you know, the music, no, cin cinematography cin is beautiful. The uh, lighting is uh, awesome. Uh, editing on point. Bruce's fight choreography. So back to Bruce's fight choreography. In his previous films, uh, I feel like each one got better and better, right? But let's say you look at Big Boss, great all around, you know, first time out. And then you look at uh, uh, Fist of Fury. The group fight sequences are incredible. The dojo one, right? But uh, I still think he was kind of finding his element there. Not really though, because that, that dojo sequence is incredible. But what stands out to me in that film was the one-on-one -on -one fight scene with Bob Baker. Just that was groundbreaking the the choreography the movement this would be the blueprint for future contemporary hong kong one-on-one -on -one, like kickboxing fight sequences right he also mixed in grappling in there the arm bar etc uh just so ahead of his time then you go to way of the dragon same thing i actually think he almost slightly digressed with the group fight sequences like the whole alleyway sequences i mean they're still entertaining but like they kind of took a step backwards, especially compared to I mean, Fist of Fury. And sometimes you, in that kind of scenario, when you see that it's, it's who you're working with as well. Right. You know, so it kind of had to go back to that basher, slight basher casting. Yeah. And then, but obviously the one-on-one -on -one fight sequences in Way of the Dragon took it to a whole new level. Then the Chuck Norris fight sequence, even with this one's with Bob Wall, Wong and Sick, just, Wow. But then this film, we go into this one and it's slightly different because this is where Bruce took the group fight sequences to just a whole new level. The underground fight sequence is just 
mind-blowing the the pace of it the choreography the editing the camera angles which you know bruce had a huge hand and you see the behind the scenes footage there's no way robert klaus could have done that <laughs> but and then but when it comes to the one-on-one sequences there's some great sequences but we don't and then the bob wall bruce lee fight is fantastic but even the finale between shia ken and bruce is obviously and it's great but we don't get a chuck norris fight right because obviously he was already super old at that point uh shia ken and you know it was the the group fight sequences were the shining uh example of his choreography in this so within his films within his short body of work and obviously we would get game of death later which had some phenomenal one-on-one choreography again uh he i feel like from this point forward when it came to the films he had finally finalized his both you know one on many fight scenes one on one and had we got more future bruce projects it would have just been films that had both to a phenomenal level uh and that's what i feel like this film brought to the table in terms of fight choreography it was just extremely groundbreaking in the sense of the big group fight scenes and the finale when everyone's fighting at once right it's 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 everyone's engaged it's not uh it's really it's probably a really nice blend of Bruce Lee's choreography and Bruce Lee's understanding it and kind of dispelling the the philosophy to the uh, of of how fight sequence should unveil to uh, the cast. I'm sure he actually talked about uh, have emotional content, have feeling with what you're doing, mixed with Robert Krauss's ability to Robert Klaus. Pro- Robert Klaus's what is Klaus? I think you said Krauss, and I was like, okay, I yeah. did. Yeah. yeah, no, Robert Klaus's. Uh, Ability to uh, coming from um, American films, Hollywood films to film sets of being able to direct a larger audience. I mean, he's he's of the age where he would have not been on the set for Spartacus, but have grown up watching Spartacus and on those films. So he understood the the massive, like larger fight sequences or the larger uh, extras, you know, sequences with extras and being able to engage all of them. I think this was a nice uh, hybrid uh, marriage between where Hong Kong cinema was trying to go and did succeed in going with this, the start of this. Is the, this is the inception of that. And uh, some Hollywood, this is how we do a big production right. sequence. It really, it's, it's really fantastic. Hey, couldn't have said it better myself. So closing thoughts on Enter the Dragon. For me, you know, my f- favorite movie of all time. I can watch it anytime. If someone came over and said, hey, man, I know you're a fan of Venice and Dragon. I've never watched it. Would you want to watch it? I'd be like, yes, no matter what. Even if I had just coincidentally enough watched it the week before, I can watch it. You know, Bruce Bruce's screen presence is another thing about this role in particular. And maybe it's just because of higher production value. You know, we really get to see him shine. Just his subtle facial expressions, everything. He showed how powerful he was as a presence, right? He showed how incredible he was and could have continued to be. He just had something about him. He had that it factor. He did. Yeah, and and like I said, people understood after this film how to capture that for themselves and for the other stars that they were bringing in. I mean, he essentially, I mean, I know I, I said it before, right? I said like he created this mold for, or the blueprint for here's your lead action star, but he, he enabled it so that people like Jean-Claude Van Damme, 
like Arnold Schwarzenegger from from foreign lands could come in and become that lead star. Uh, if that makes sense, I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm sure that existed before in Hollywood, but there were also more of ensemble pieces. Yeah. You know, this this was this was if it wasn't the change, this is the one that this is the one that set uh, the trajectory of what a proper action film should be. Yep, and its influence both production wise, its influence to individual. People like, you know, martial artists that were inspired by this, like famous fighters, you know, that saw this as their first, whether it was this movie or other Bruce Lee ones, just how the impact he had, the cultural impact he had on a global scale. You know, it wasn't just American culture. It wasn't just Hong Kong culture. It was internationally uh, significant in inspiring people. And without this movie, who knows what martial arts cinema would have become or the trajectory of it or how long it would have taken Etc. Uh, Etc. Et this particular film showed that we already knew martial arts films could be profitable, and at that point, it was mostly because of how cheap they were to shoot in the East and release in the West to audiences that were digging the movies. But this was the first one that showed that a major motion picture could be made that was a martial arts film and could be released and be. Not just profitable, but significantly profitable. And because of Bruce Lee, we were able to get future superstars. And whether it's just in regular action cinema or American martial arts action cinema, a la Jean-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal, Jeff Speakman, anybody? Uh, or obviously our Asian superstars, you know, uh, Jackie Chan, Samuel Hung, Jet Li later on. Japanese martial arts cinema was definitely influenced and i actually and this could be a discussion for another day i actually feel that at first post bruce lee it was sunny chiba and the japan action club that did more with bruce's style and choreography and helped kind of evolve it and take it to this next next level almost a little bit faster than hong kong did you you are you are absolutely correct because it was the the filmmaking was I'd say more advanced yes. and understanding the, you know, particularly Sony Chiba, a lot has to be said for him because I think he was a student of cinema and of other martial arts cinema. Also the difference, once again, lifelong real martial artists. I mean, he earned his black belt under Masoyama. You know, he started while he was in college already at a phenomenal gymnast, but you know, he had that real authentic martial arts ability. He brought with black belts in, uh, Kyokushin Kai Karate under Masoyama, right? Like, I mean, and just to earn your black belt in Kyokushin, you have to do like a 20-man kumite. So he had real fight experience in that sense, you know, in uh, judo and Shirinji Kempo. So he, like Bruce, brought that authenticity that at that time, as I mentioned before, Jackie, Samuel, guys like that were starting, especially once they left the Peking Opera, to learn kind of more real combat-based martial arts, whether it was Hapkido for Korean martial arts, Western boxing, uh, Jackie obviously was influenced by and learned. Uh Wing Chun in terms of like more real fighting uh, Kung Fu styles, etc. So and I feel like maybe that's why Japan was able to start progressing it right out the gate. And then Hong Kong maybe took a little bit of extra time, but either which way. Enter the Dragon, phenomenal picture. If you haven't seen it, go watch it as soon as you can. Pick up the Criterion box set of the Bruce Lee releases. It's phenomenal. Any Bruce Lee fan should have it. I know there's been so many. I know a couple years ago they already had done the uh, remaster Blu-rays of Bruce Lee's film. I think it was Shout Factory. I also own that kit, but do yourself a favor and go buy this one as well. They're both great, but you need the Criterion Collection because it has Enter the Dragon, which the previous one didn't, and it has also a bunch of other stuff, Game of Tattoo, etc., etc. So, 
Final notes, my friend. <laughs> before you before you sped up there at the end, uh, you you had the intonation of Richard Norton. Oh, not not the accent, but you were like, you got to get your hands on it, something like that. That kind of sounded Irish just now. Well, yeah, it did. <laughs> keep yeah. your yeah. keep your bloody keep. hands up. <laughs> Painful. But anywho, my friend, uh, this was an excellent discussion. It we'll was. Be, we'll be back next week. We haven't decided what yet. Maybe Steven Seagal, maybe something else. Maybe we'll uh, mix it up. But either which way, have yourself a beautiful rest of your Sunday, and we'll be talking soon. Sounds good. Peace.